0: For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Um, my name is Dan, and I'm one of the elders here at Trailhead Church, and uh, if you're joining us for the first time, I just want to say welcome. Um, we're glad you're here, and I want to let you know there's a, a gift for you out on the Connection Point table, which is just outside the door there on the left. We have some gift bags, and we would love for you to, to take one of those, um, and you're joining us in the middle of a, a mini-series that we're doing on, on the Psalms. And the Psalms are often referred to as the songbook of the Bible. They're in the Old Testament, and it's a collection of, of poems and songs that are meant to be sung and shared by God's people. And uh, so we're digging into that um, over the next few, few weeks. And what we're looking at is the Psalms, two components that we're really focusing on. One is how the Psalms help us to express the things that that we experience in life, our our joys, our sorrows, our sufferings. And they they show us how to express ourselves in relation to God. We can see as others, the authors of the Psalms, how they express themselves to God. There's also a a formative piece, recognizing that, that in our emotions, we're image bearers. And so we know God has emotions. We know that... In Scripture, we see where he was angry, where he grieved, um, and where he had joy. And we see that also in the Psalms, and they help us to, uh, to shape our emotions and to form them towards good ends and in a Godward direction. Um, before we dig in this morning, um, let me pray for us, and uh, then we'll jump in. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for your word, so help us to see how we can relate to the psalms and how we can identify with them, and that may our hearts be shaped and transformed. Um, God, as we see them as as your words, inspired by your Holy Spirit, and uh, God, that that we would desire to find joy in you, to glorify you, and to respond as the the psalmist responded, um, and to find joy in that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, so this morning, I wanted to share with you a, uh, a story here. It's from a famous American author. Um, it's not Colonel Sanders. Um, it's uh, Mark Twain. Um, those of you from Hannibal, Missouri, are probably offended now. It's <laughs> <I said laughs> Colonel Sanders. Um, but uh, now this is Mark Twain. And in his autobiography, he, he tells a story uh, about... A, a man that was that was shot in the streets of Hannibal, Missouri, and he witnessed this this man, his name was, was Smar, and someone had um, a bone to pick with him that they felt Smar had had offended them, and so the plaintiff decided to take the law into his own hands and he actually went out and, and shot uh, this man and As the man was laying there dying in the streets, uh, Twain reports that someone uh, took and took a large family Bible and, and put it on this dying man's chest, and that image was seared into Mark Twain's mind. That as this man was laboring to breathe, there's the weight of this Bible on him, and and Twain would have nightmares of that image of where he was laying down and he felt this tremendous weight upon his chest, like he didn't measure up, that he wasn't meeting the requirements of Scripture. He wasn't living the life that God demanded of him, and he was feeling the weight. He had nightmares of that, and he couldn't resolve it. He couldn't resolve it, and Twain later was an outspoken atheist in renouncing, renouncing God. So this morning, I want to ask how many of you have ever felt that crushing weight, that feeling like you've, you've made a mistake and you don't measure up that you have disappointed God that maybe you have lost his favor and you don't know how to fix it and what do you what do you do with that how do you respond to God how does it affect your relationship with God and so this morning we're taking a look at a psalm that's that's honestly pretty heavy um, it's a psalm that that deals with the harsh reality of personal sin uh, and brokenness that this is One of the psalms associated with a specific story, we get the background of an historical event that's described elsewhere in Scripture. And this is the story of King David in Bathsheba. Um, So let's flip back a few pages, and we'll take a look at uh, the background, the history behind the psalm. And I'll show it on the screen here for you. Um, It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful and David sent and inquired about the woman and one said is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David I am pregnant. So there's the introduction to our passage this morning that we're talking about adultery. And that David takes another man's wife and and she ends up getting pregnant. Now David doesn't want it to be known that that he's sinned, that he's committed adultery. So he wants to try to to hide this and to somehow conceal uh, that this has happened. So... Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was actually away at war, fighting for his king and, and country. So David gets this idea; he's going to bring Uriah back home and allow Uriah to spend uh, time with his with his wife. So Uriah comes back back home, but Uriah is a pretty noble guy. Okay, he's he's pretty stoic and uh, a stand-up guy, and he says, "You know what? I can't. I can't do this. I can't go." In and stay in my home and be with my wife when my brothers, my brothers at arms, are off in battle and they don't get the same opportunity. Uriah was saying that's not that's not fair. So I'm not going to um, I'm not going to enjoy that. I'm going to go back to the front with with my brothers at arms. So David's plan backfires. It doesn't work out the way that that he had hoped. So he comes up with another plan since he couldn't make it look like Uriah had spent time with his wife, and and that's where the baby um, was conceived. So instead, he decides to have Uriah killed. So as Uriah is on the battlefront, David had sent orders for the men to pull back and for Uriah to be left on his own, and he ended up dying in battle. And so David's plan is to then take Bathsheba as his own wife. Quickly to take hers, his own, so that it looks like the baby was just a natural result of their marriage relationship. Well, the issue here, or what we see here, is that God wasn't going to allow David to hide his sin. So what God does is he sends a prophet. He sends Nathan to David to confront him. And so Nathan confronts David And David is broken. He is broken over his sin. He admits it and begins to take ownership for what he has done. And so this is where we get Psalm 51. So it's David writing this song after that incident and after he was confronted. So if you look at the the beginning of your passage, right above verse 1, uh, it has a, is an intro there. And I want you to keep in mind that this, this passage is a song that's meant to be sung by the entire congregation of Israel. Okay, it's a personal psalm, but it's being shared with the entire nation. And the intro says this. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had come in to Bathsheba how's that for an intro to a song? Right? Imagine if, if Brian opened our worship service with, with something like this. It said, the song about when our king was confronted on being an adulterer and a murderer. Um, yeah. And that's exactly, that's exactly what is being shared here. And so the question that question we can ask is why? Why, why is this shared with us. Why is David sharing this with the nation? Why would it be encouraged for this to be sung by God's people? And I believe the answer is to give us an example of what repentance, of what dealing with our, our sin and taking our sin to God looks like. It's about how we respond to the the heavy feelings of guilt and shame as a result of our sin. And it also gives us a glimpse into the character of of who God is and what God does. And so what we see in this psalm is a path from David begging for mercy to confidence in the God of mercy. So as we consider this this morning, um, what I want us to take a a quick look at is what are some ways that, that we might deal with sin? When we do something that we know is not the right thing to have, have done, or maybe when we've hurt someone, or when we know that we've, we've done something that God does not uh, approve, how do we deal with that? Well, there's some ways, some unhelpful ways, that we're very prone to do that. And so the first way is that, and this isn't an exhaustive list, and some of these are going to overlap, but uh, bear with me. One of the ways we deal with that is, is by hiding. And this is what we saw David do. He was hiding. He wanted to cover up his sin. He didn't want anyone to know what had happened. And so there are a bunch of reasons why we might do this. One reason may be that we just don't want to face the consequences of our actions. We may be worried about how others might then view us or underneath our hiding. We may not believe that God is a God of mercy and that even in his consequences towards us, in his discipline, that it will be out of love, out of his love for us. And so we try to instead we try to manage our sin and we become slaves to essentially keeping up an image of ourselves that is not the real us. It is not the real us, not our true self. At the core, we don't believe that God or people will love us as we truly are. Another way we're prone to respond to our sin is, is we're prone to minimize it. This means that, that we make it like it's really, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. I mean, yeah, I made a mistake, but, but who hasn't? Um, that we think the situation it really isn't that bad, and we want to pretend like, oh, that, that didn't, really, didn't really happen. The person that, that minimizes sin, when we minimize our sin, we desperately want to believe that we're okay, and that, that we don't need help. Now, on a, on a lighthearted note, I wanted to show you uh, this image. And this is like us when we, we minimize our sin, thinking that we can fix it ourselves or we can get out of it. And sin is like this net. This dog isn't going anywhere, right? All right? It's not like this dog is saying, oh, I got it, I'll be fine, don't worry about it. This dog, he, he's stuck. And that's us when we minimize. We say, I'm fine, I'm okay. Uh, it's really not not that bad. Another response to our sin might be self righteousness. This is also a form of minimizing, but this is when you believe the sins of others are worse than your own. This leads you to maybe you compare yourself to others, and we going to say I might be guilty of. of this particular thing, but I'll never do that. I'll never do that thing that that other person is doing. Or maybe your self-righteousness is that you can clean yourself up. Or because of the things that, that you do, you can make yourself presentable to God. Or that if you're just a, a good person, that God will accept you. And so we respond to sin with self-righteousness. And lastly, another way that we might respond... Is, is through self-condemnation, and this is where we, we beat ourselves up. This was Mark Twain as he dealt with his sin, and he saw it as a, as a Bible crushing his chest. This is when we believe that our sin is too big for God, and nothing can be done about it. It recognizes our helplessness, but it fails to recognize that God is a God of deliverance and transformation. Now, this can also play itself out in emotional penance. Okay? Emotional penance. And penance is a word that describes when, when we try to make up for the wrong that, that we've done. When we try to, to do something to earn back God's favor and make up for our sin. It's an effort to save ourselves, essentially, through our own suffering. If I just inflict this suffering upon myself, then I'll regain God's favor and I'll be right with God that he'll be pleased with us. And what self-condemnation and emotional penance essentially say is that Jesus' death wasn't enough. That it wasn't enough, that there's something more that has to be done to make up or to fix my sin. And what these responses, what they all have in common, what they all share, is one of two things. Either they fail to recognize... That God is merciful, or they fail to recognize that we need god 's mercy. they fail to recognize the gravity of our sin that would require us to need it, to need Him to fix it, or they fail to believe that God will, will fix it and love us in spite of our sin. So we know from our story that uh, that David is in a pretty dark place, okay. He's committed adultery, and he's committed murder, and that's where we read in the psalm that he's guilty of two egregious sins, and he's been, he's been caught. There's no longer any hiding. He's been confronted. He knows that the prophet Nathan knows. He tried to hide, but God knew, and God refused to let him hide. So where, where does David start? He's caught He knows he's sinned. He's being broken and convicted of his sin. So where does he go? What does he do with that? David's finally at an end of himself, and he's realizing, you know what? I I can't fix this. I can't fix it. So David is first going to go back to what he remembers about God's character, about who God is, what God does, the kind of God that he is. And so Jake shared with us last week a verse from the Old Testament in Exodus. And we can often be prone to think that the God of the, of the Old Testament, so the God before Jesus came to earth, that he was cruel, that he was harsh, that he was wrathful. And we do see God's wrath in the Old Testament. But I don't think we, we put enough emphasis on verses like this, where it says, "...the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious." slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the God that David is going to run to. This is what he does. This is the God he goes to in response to being convicted of his sin. He goes and appeals to a merciful and gracious God. So let's read in our passage verses 1 and 2. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, what David is doing is David is recognizing his need for God's mercy. He's pleading to God's mercy And that God is steadfast in his love to David. But when he comes, David doesn't come with any presumption. David doesn't come saying, God, you owe me this. That God, I'm entitled to this. I'm entitled for you to forgive me. No, that's not how David comes. He believes that God is the God that that verse in Exodus describes. He believes that that is God. But he doesn't believe that God owes him anything, and so he comes humbly. He comes humbly and presents his sin to God. He recognizes his need, and he takes it to God. Next, David responds by acknowledging and confessing his sin. See, it's David's trust in God's mercy that allows him to finally be honest about his sin, to be honest about the reality of, God, this is where i have at. I've done this wrong. I've done this horrible thing. He's honest about his sin, and he's honest about how it's affecting him. In verse 3, he says, his sin is ever before me. Have you ever felt that, that when you've made a mistake or you've done something wrong, it just plays continuously in your mind, that you try not to think about it, or maybe you've tried to to give an apology or just to try to move on, and it just plays over and over again, and you can't forget it. And this is, where, this is where David is at. He says, "A sin is ever before him. See, he's constantly remembering his offense. Then in verse 4, he says this. He says, Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So the point of this part of the passage is not, when he says that, God, I've sinned against you and you alone, it's not to minimize how he has sinned against others, how he has sinned against Uriah and his family and the nation and Bathsheba. He's not minimizing that here. What he's actually saying is sin is first and foremost against God, that Uriah was God's, was part of God's family, was God's son. And that, God, that Uriah was part of God's people. And that God is the ultimate judge for sin. And so as David prays, he doesn't come trying to argue, trying to present a defense, minimize, or blame shift. He comes and he says, God, you would be fair in your judgment. I have done this wrong and whatever you decide to do with me, then you are just and you are right to, to do so. He says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David is, is recognizing, saying, God, I am broken and I am broken in, in my core that from birth, David recognizes, God, I'm a sinner. I'm rebellious. I constantly turn away from you, that there's a problem. David recognizes there's a problem at his core. And in verse 8, he describes his feeling of guilt, like his bones have been broken. He's feeling crushed. We might describe this as, as having that knot in our stomach or feeling a weight on our shoulders, the burden of our sin and we feel broken so what does David do with that in the midst of his brokenness he acknowledges his sin, he recognizes his need and he asks God to be created new to be renewed for God to not only pardon his transgression but to fix the core of his heart that led to the transgression in the first place, that it Simply parting him wouldn't fix the problem. It would only result in David sinning again in some other way or some other form. So he's pleading to God, God, give me a renewed heart. In verse 10, he prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He asks God for heart change, for God to change his core, his inner being. Lastly, what we see is David responds with humble worship. After seeing the enormity of his guilt, he desires to be able to have his joy restored and to give God praise. It's the God who delivers sinners. It's the God who, though David is unworthy of God's favor, And God's love, David hopes to receive that joy and forgiveness. And David hopes to be able to take that and point others towards it. To be able to say, God has forgiven me. And so to be able to tell others who need that forgiveness, that God is a God of mercy and steadfast love. And he desires to praise God in that. And a key piece here, as we look at verses 16 through 17, is what David realizes is that it's not sacrifice that will make up. It's not his sacrifice in and of itself that will make up for his sin. You see, this is a point in history. This is before Christ. And this is a point in history where the Israelites were under God's law. And part of that was God asked of them to give, to give sacrifices when they sinned. And I know this sounds, this sounds gory, and of course we don't do this anymore, thankfully, but it was to be symbolic of, of Christ's future death. But David realizes the point wasn't that God needed, needed an animal in order to pay for that sin. The, the psalm just before the one we're reading now, God basically says, it's not like I need anything. All of the beasts of the entire world, all the beasts of the field are mine anyway. So he's telling them, it's not like you're giving me anything that I don't already have. What God is after is the heart of the worshiper, for the worshiper to have contrition and for the sacrifice to be symbolic and to represent the condition of the person's heart and of David's heart. It's about the orientation of our heart. And this is what David is realizing and wants to respond to. So that it's David's heart that God wants, not his sacrifice, not his penance. And so this morning, as we read and we attempt to put ourselves in the Psalms, part of this is, again, I said, for us to, to help us to be able to express ourselves, what we're feeling, and also to help form and, and shape our responses. So as we read ourselves in the Psalms, we examine our own hearts and consider how we respond to God's conviction. See, David's prayer is that God would wipe away his transgression and renew his heart, that his sin would no longer be counted against him. You see, it was God's gift of grace that God said, David, I'm not going to allow you to hide. I'm not going to allow you to cover your sin. And so God pursues David out of his love for him. And I believe God does the the same with us, that God convicts us, allows us to feel the weight of our sin so that we would turn to him because God is more concerned with our character than he is our comfort. So God pursues David And allows David to sense the weight, the weight of his sin. That God is willing to allow us to be broken in order that we would turn back to him. See, God knew that the sin David was seeking, the sin David would seek would not give David life. That he would never be fully satisfied in the things that he was indulging in but only God could give life. And so we, like David, we often turn to other things to find life, things other than God. It may be sex, it may be money, it may be power, control, comfort, approval, and they all fall short. They'll never fully satisfy us, but God wants to free us from those things so that we'll have life in him and humbly worship him like David did, testifying to his goodness and mercy. Now we know that the prayer of David and the answer to David would ultimately be filled, fulfilled in the person of Christ, that sin, the sin would be resolved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's Son. The Scripture tells us that God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And so it's when we put our faith that Jesus was the Son of God, that he died for us and paid the price for all of our sin, that that we get his righteousness and we get life. And that God chose to free us from our sin and call us his sons. And it doesn't stop there. Scripture says when we believe in Christ, his spirit is within us, molding and shaping and transforming our hearts, just like David prayed and asked for, saying, God, transform my heart. And God is doing that in his love for us. When we put our faith in Christ, he begins to transform our heart. And we grow in imitating the character of of Christ, And that's what David was praying. God, renew my heart. And that's what God does. So I wanted to share with you another passage this morning, this time in Matthew. And this can be found on page, I believe it's 822 in the, in the Bibles under your seats there. This is Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. This is Jesus speaking with his disciples shortly after foretelling his his death and resurrection. Starting in verse 24, it says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I wanted to touch on this verse this morning is because sometimes this is taken in the context of well, we need to self-abase or we need to make ourselves suffer in order to, to glorify God. And there is, there definitely is a sense of where we lay down, we desire to lay down our desires for God. But there's a little bit different image here that I want to share with you. So, at the time, so we know Jesus was, was crucified, and crucifixion was a Roman form of punishment. And it would begin by after, after the person was found guilty of their, their crime, then they would be forced to, they would be, if they were sentenced to death by crucifixion, they would be sentenced to carry the part of the cross, the crossbeam, that they would have to carry it through the streets, to the place of their appointed death. They would have to take this, this object of shame, and as they would go through the streets to be mocked, and they knew full well, I have committed a crime, I am guilty, I deserve the punishment that I'm about to receive. And imagine that that was, that was one of us. Imagine that that was you. Recognizing you're guilty of a crime, you deserve the punishment you're about to receive. And you pick up your cross and you walk through the streets and you get to the place where you're appointed to die and your spot is already filled. That someone is already there, taking the price, paying the punishment that you deserve. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And that's what this is telling us to remind ourselves that we are worthy of death, whatever punishment God would seek to give us, because of our offense, our rebellion against a perfect and holy and just God. And God says, you've been forgiven because you believed in Christ. He has paid the price for you. There's nothing you have to do. There's no emotional penance you have to pay. There's nothing you could do to make up for it. Jesus has already done it. He stood in your place. He's died the death that we should have died. So what this says, what this says is for those of us that are hiding, it says God loves you where you are, not where you're pretending to be. So you don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend that you're sinless. You don't have to hide because Jesus has already taken your sin and shame on the cross, He's already paid the price for it. When we minimize, the response to this is the situation is bad. The situation is, is real bad. But the work of Jesus is greater. The work he did for us paid the full price, not just part of it, the full price for our sin. And so we don't have to minimize. We can face it honestly. When we try to be self-righteous we can be reminded that we don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to make ourselves appear right before God. Jesus has already done it for us. There's nothing else that we can or need to do. There's nothing. We have no defense in ourselves. It's all about Christ, and we can rest in that. We can rest in that. And then lastly, for those of us that are feeling, maybe we're feeling self-condemned. Again, Jesus took the full punishment for your sin. You don't have to beat yourself up and try to fix the problem. Jesus is the capable physician that sees our brokenness. He says, I already know. I already know, and I love you, and I want to fix it. See, this is the part that Mark Twain didn't get. He felt the crushing weight of his sin, but he didn't see God as the merciful Savior, the one who would die in his place so that Mark Twain didn't have to fix or try to measure up, but instead he could rest in the person that has already measured up for him. He didn't see on the cross, God was saying, Mark Twain, I, I love you as you are. Believe in me and don't try to fix your sin. Rest in the fact that Jesus has fixed it for us to believe in him. So some of us need to hear that this morning. Maybe you're here and you're feeling the weight of something you've done, maybe recently, maybe even a long time ago, and you're carrying the weight of that, wondering, how do I fix it? How do I get restored relationship with God? And My encouragement to you is God has already taken care of it for you. You just have to believe. You have to believe and rest in the fact that Jesus has paid the price for us. Some of us honestly need to be reminded of what it cost God. That we can minimize and take our sin lightly and not strive for holiness. A holiness that's based out of God's love. Ephesians 5.1 says be imitators of God as beloved children. So we imitate God. We try to imitate his character, his goodness, his holiness because he loves us. Not to get his love. We do it because he has already loved us. I had a friend once share with me a time when I was I was confessing some sin, some an area in my life where I had had disobeyed and I had let God down, or I had let me rephrase that, where I had done something that I knew um, wasn't God honoring, and I was wrestling with that and how what God's view of me then was because of this thing. And this friend said to me, he said, you know. God's delight, your sin doesn't change God's delight in you because God already delights in you because of Christ, that Christ has fully paid and accounted for your sin. So what your sin does is changes your delight in God, that as we feed our sins, we we desire the things that will never give us life. We're not allowing ourselves to experience the joy that God gives us that he wants us to delight in him because he is ultimately delightful. And we can find joy and peace in him, not in the things that would lead us astray. So the invitation for you this morning is, I want to invite you to to believe, if you're carrying that weight of sin, to believe that Jesus has paid the price for you, that you can take your sin honestly before God. Say, God, I, I messed up. God, I messed up but I believe in what Jesus has done. And I ask you to continue to change my heart. We can do that, recognizing God loves us, and we haven't lost God's favor. So as we wrap up this morning, um, I have a few response questions I want to share with you. For us to consider and ask God to search our hearts, that we may ultimately find joy and peace in, in Him. And I know this is kind of a heavy message this morning, and there's a lot of, there can be a lot of weight to this. But what I ultimately want to encourage you towards is God wants you to be free of the weight of sin. That God is a God rich in mercy, steadfast in His love. So consider that as you ask yourself these questions. First question is, what sin do you need to face honestly before God? Like David later faced, recognizing that he deserved God's judgment. What sin do you need to face honestly before God and receive his mercy? Where might God want to free you from a small view of his mercy? Where do you think that maybe God's mercy and his grace isn't big enough to account for your sin? Or maybe that you don't need it? Or might God want to free you from that small view of his mercy? And lastly, how might the mercy you've received move you to love others? So as David concludes the psalm, he talks about that I want to be able to praise you and in sharing your love and your forgiveness with other transgressors, others that have sinned. God has a way of doing that where we're able to then, after we realize we've received forgiveness, to share where we failed with others to be able to be honest and vulnerable with that and then to love people that are also struggling with sin to point them towards life and share our experiences with them so how might the mercy you've received leave you to love others so let me pray for us and then after a few moments we'll share in communion together father i thank you for your word I thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. So God, this morning I ask that that we would hear the message that you are a God of mercy, that we don't have to try to make up for our sin, that we can't fix it, but we don't have to, that you have fixed it for us, that we may we respond, God, with belief and rest, knowing that you are steadfast in your love even when we are not. So may we know that, this morning. God, may we grow in our understanding of who you are, recognizing the depths of our sin, but recognizing how much we are loved. That you were willing, Jesus, you were willing to die for us. That's how much you loved us. And so we can imitate you and respond in worship because of that love and because of who you are. Help us to see that this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.